there will be false prophets, brothers and sisters. There will be teachers and leaders in the church who look like Christians, but who are in fact in the service of the devil and who will call to you from the ditches and who will attempt to lure you off the road that leads to life and peace. Do not listen to them. You will recognize them by their fruits. That is, their lives will be characterized by behaviors that do not bear the kingdom stamp. They will be men who take revenge, men who love money, men who desire the praise of other people, all the things that kingdom people have just been told not to do. They do not have the love of the Father in them, and therefore they do not have the life of the kingdom in them. Their fruit betrays their root. Welcome to Into the Word with Paul Carter. I'm your host, Woody Woodland. As we come to the end of the Sermon on the Mount in this episode, we begin to understand just how high the stakes are for the would-be followers of Christ. In this closing section, we hear about two roads, two trees, and two types of people. Jesus is painting an urgent picture here about the choices we must make as his followers in this world. There are ways that lead to glory and ways that lead to death and many hazards and many deceivers along the way. Here to walk us through all of that is our Bible teacher at Into the Word, Pastor Paul Carter. Your word is a lamp unto my feet. If you have your Bible with you, I'd love for you to open it now to Matthew chapter 7. This is the third and final chapter in Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. As I mentioned in the episode on chapter 5, scholars generally recognize three parts to the Sermon on the Mount. From chapter 5, verses 1 to 16, we have a basic introduction in which Jesus speaks about the norms and witness of the kingdom. Then from 5.17 through 7.12, we have the main body of the sermon. And then thirdly, from 7.13 to 27, we have Christ's conclusion and invitation. D.A. Carson provides a helpful introduction to this last bit of the sermon body that we're going to be reading today in chapter 7, 1 to 12. He says, Before Jesus winds up the Sermon on the Mount and drives home the alternatives which men must face, he warns against three other dangers. The first two are cast in negative terms. We are not to be judgmental, 7, 1 to 5. And yet we are not to be undiscriminating, 7, 6. The third is formulated positively. We must persist in our pursuit of God, exercising childlike trust as we do so. 7, 7 to 11, closed quote. That does seem nicely to summarize what we see here in this final section before the invitation. So hear now the word of the Lord, beginning at verse 1. Judge not that you be not judged, for with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that's in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye, when there is the log in your own eye? You hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Do not give dogs what is holy, Do not throw your pearls before pigs, lest they trample them underfoot and turn to attack you. Now, as I read to you just a minute ago, I think we're supposed to be hearing two warnings in those six verses. The first warning is against 
censoriousness. And the second warning is against a dangerous lack of discernment. As is very often the case in the Christian life, we are encouraged to walk a very narrow road between two precipitous ditches. There is a fine line between censoriousness on the one hand and naivety on the other. To be perfectly honest with you, I feel like I have spent a fair amount of time face down in both of these ditches. It is really hard to be zealous for the truth without also becoming judgmental toward other people who are less zealous for the truth. I'm guessing that if you are listening to this program, which goes verse by verse and chapter by chapter through the Bible, then you're a bit of a truth person. You care about the Word of God, and therefore you probably inclined toward judging and condemning other people. I get that. And so people like you and people like me need to hear this warning. Jesus is telling us that if we become censorious in nature, if we appoint ourselves to the Theological Neighborhood Watch program and we're constantly snooping other people's Facebook feed and other other pastors' sermon audio and, and making uninvited and unsolicited analysis and criticism then we are in danger of being condemned by God. Now, before you hit me with verse 6, you you need to hear, as I need to hear, verses 1 to 5. We need to do a gut check here. We need to engage in some humble self-reflection. Are we censorious? Are, Are we unhelpfully judgmental? Are we impatient with people in process? Are we holding people to our own personal convictions and standards as if they reported to us? Are we expecting of theological and ecclesiological neighbors a level of creedal conformity that actually goes beyond that which is clearly taught in Holy Scripture? That That's a faithful and obedient response to this passage, so don't skip over that. Sit, pause, and reflect on that for a moment. And and then, and only then, look with me at verse 6, because there's a warning there too. Now, sadly, the people who likely need that warning probably aren't listening to this program. We, We need to see here that Jesus is exercising judgment and discernment. He says that certain people are dogs. Certain people are pigs. I appreciated what John Stott said here, largely because I appreciate John Stott. John Stott is he whom there are fewer nicer than. And so if he says this, then I think we can trust it as a fair review of this strange statement. He says, Jesus always called a spade a spade. His outspokenness led him to call Herod Antipas that fox. And hypocritical scribes and Pharisees whitewashed tombs and a brood of vipers. Here he affirms that there are certain human beings who act like animals and may therefore be accurately designated dogs and pigs. Closed quote. All right, so we shouldn't be any nicer than Jesus. We should aim to be as discerning as Jesus. And Jesus says that some people are accurately designated dogs and pigs. Now, what exactly does he mean by that? A lot of folks in the early church assumed that he was saying here 
that we ought not to allow unbelievers and persistent sinners to partake of communion. Do not give what is holy to the dogs. So, for example, in the Didache, which was written and used in the church just about one human lifetime after the death of Christ, we read this. Let no one eat or drink of your Eucharist, but they who have been baptized into the name of the Lord. For concerning this also the Lord has said, Give not that which is holy to the dogs. Closed quote. So, it is absolutely true that this is how the early church understood and applied this teaching. But, most scholars today think it unlikely that Jesus was thinking that when he said what he said. Meaning, that may be a perfectly suitable application of what Jesus says here. But Jesus was more likely speaking in a general sense. He was simply saying that you do have to know who is regenerate and who isn't. You have to know who has a love for the truth and who is simply making a mess in the house of the Lord. You have to know that. You have to be honest about that if you want to be useful as a servant of the kingdom. So again, this is a fine line with two precipitous ditches on either side. William Hendrickson threads the needle. He says, to be discriminating and critical is necessary. To be hypercritical is wrong. So... Know how you lean and repent accordingly. Verse 7. Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives and the one who seeks finds. And to the one who knocks it will be opened. Or which one of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? Now, given that Jesus has just asked us to walk a very narrow line and to conduct ourselves with a level of wisdom that few of us naturally possess, it is reasonable here to assume that his counsel on prayer is related to the impossible conduct he has just required, right? We, we want to be good. We want to be wise. We want to be merciful. We want to be righteous, but it's hard. We seem magnetically drawn to the ditches on either side of the narrow road. We need help. <laughs> so ask for help, Jesus says. Seek, knock, Be persistent. It isn't as though God doesn't want to give you what you're asking for here. So pray on, brother and sister. God will supply you and God will grow you by one degree of glory to the next. You recall that these verses, verses 7 to 12, represent the last sentences and statements in the body of the Sermon on the Mount. Thus, it is appropriate for Jesus to provide a sort of summary of the whole. Look at verse 12. So, whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them. For this is the law and the prophets. We know this as the golden rule, phrased positively as opposed to negatively. It is another way of saying, love your neighbor as yourself. Life in the kingdom of God is about loving God and loving neighbor. Jesus has helped us to see that this is the essence of the law, rightly understood and applied. 
Having thus summarized his sermon, Jesus now begins to offer his closing invitation. And before we read it, let's just appreciate the logic of that order. Jesus first describes the kingdom of heaven in terms of its norms, witnesses, and demands. And only then does he invite people to enter in. How how different that is than how we often preach and conduct our evangelism today. We often invite people to make decisions before we have told them what's at stake and what is required. That is dishonest. Jesus tells people that the kingdom will cost them a great deal. Kingdom people will need to let go of a great many things in order to squeeze through the narrow gate that is here described. They'll have to let go of their desire for popularity, reputation, wealth, revenge, comfort, and ease, to name just a few. This is no doubt why Jesus said elsewhere that it is hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven, harder than for a camel to pass through the eye of a needle. Only after explaining all the costs and all the difficulties, as well as all the blessings and provision that can be expected, only then, only then does Jesus invite people to enter in. That is a model we should all be careful to follow in our own preaching and evangelism. Let's begin reading now at verse 13. Enter by the narrow gate. For the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are few. Notice that the gate comes before the way. As Jesus said in John 3, verse 3, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. You have to come to the narrow point of decision. You have to come to Jesus in order to enter the kingdom of heaven. Jesus is the door or the gate into the kingdom of heaven. In Luke's version of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus actually uses the word door here. He says in Luke 13, 24, strive to enter through the narrow door. Now, he may have said this in Aramaic, and Matthew and Luke then translated slightly differently into Greek, or he may have given this invitation many, many, many times using slightly different words. The point, however, is entirely clear. Jesus is the way into the kingdom of God. He's the wicket gate. Wicket borrowed there from John Bunyan's story of Pilgrim's Progress. Not wicked, wicket, like ticket wicket, a small, narrow opening through which you must pass in order to walk on the way to the celestial city. That's what Matthew is recording here. That's what Jesus is saying here. There's no possibility of confusion as to the meaning. In John 10, Jesus says, I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. To enter the kingdom, you must come and bow before the king. This is the message of the Bible, Old Testament and New. Psalm 2 verse 12 says, kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Did you hear that? Blessed are those who kiss the son and take refuge in him. The blessings of the kingdom are for those who bow in humility, submission, obedience, and trust before King Jesus. Plain and simple. Most however, will pass the king by 
See how many there are on the road to destruction and how few turn aside to the crucified king. But the wide road, the well-traveled road leads to destruction. It's the narrow road, the road of the cross, the road of Christ that leads to the kingdom of heaven. Enter it, walk it, and do not turn aside. Pastor Paul, let me have a word here because I have a question that I imagine many of our listeners might have as they listen to this portion of the program audio. It sounds like Jesus here is putting the onus on us as followers to stay the course. Earlier in this chapter, he tells his disciples to ask and to seek and to knock in hopes that they will eventually enter in. And now here he's saying, the road is narrow. The way's hard, and few of those are going to find it. So, again, it sounds like he's saying that we need to really watch ourselves lest we be tempted off the road that leads to eternal life. And you sound like you're saying pretty much the same thing. You were pretty intense there. You said, enter it, walk it, and do not turn aside. So, here's my question. I thought it was God's job to keep us on the road that leads to eternal life. We sing that song in church called, I think it's, He Will Hold Me Fast. And there's that verse in the Bible where Jesus says, This is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. That's John 6.39. So if it is God's will for none to be lost, and if he will hold us fast— Why is Jesus giving such firm and urgent instruction about perseverance here in Matthew 7? Well, on one level, I would say that these firm and urgent instructions in Matthew 7 are a big part of how he will hold us fast. Listen, this this tension is one of the most important tensions in all the Bible. There are things in Scripture that seem to be spoken of in two complementary ways. The Bible does talk about how God is committed to our perseverance. In the book of Jude, for example, the author ends the letter by praying to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. To the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. That's Jude, verses 24 to 25. So he ends the letter by praying to the keeping God. And yet, in the same breath, earlier in the same letter, he writes and he says to these people, these same people, keep yourself in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. That's Jude verse 21. So which is it? Does God keep us or do we keep us? Exactly. That's <laughs> what I'm asking. Yeah. And, and, and it seems like, if we read the whole Bible on this, that the answer has to be both. We, we have to keep on asking. We have to keep on seeking. We have to keep on knocking. We have to put one foot in front of the other on the narrow way that leads to life. And if we do that, then he will hold us fast. He will never let us fail or falter. He will fill up the car with gas every night and will never allow us to be waylaid and destroyed along the road. He will measure the opposition that we face and he will bury supplies in the deserts along the road. Hmm, Like in Exodus 17 with the water from the rock. Yeah, exactly. John Piper preached on the book of Jude once. And he resolved this this tension, this kind of both and tension between you know God's response or God's sovereignty and our human responsibility. He resolved that by saying a line that I've never forgotten. He said, "God keeps us in the faith 
by enabling us to do keeping things. Mm, I like that. Yeah, me too. I, and I think that's it exactly. God holds the fighters fast. Those who keep showing up and keep pressing forward. He will never let them fail or falter. Thanks be to God. All right. Well, thanks for walking us through that. Let's jump back into the story now at verse 15. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus, you will recognize them by their fruits. So Jesus is saying there, there will be false prophets, brothers and sisters. There will be teachers and leaders in the church who look like Christians, but who are in fact in the service of the devil and who will call to you from the ditches and who will attempt to lure you off the road that leads to life and peace. Do not listen to them. You will recognize them by their fruits. That is, their lives will be characterized by behaviors that do not bear the kingdom stamp. They will be men who take revenge, men who love money, men who desire the praise of other people, all the things that kingdom people have just been told not to do. They do not have the love of the Father in them, and therefore they do not have the life of the kingdom in them. Their fruit betrays their root. Nevertheless, they will lead many astray. Many will live and die in the ditch, all the while thinking that they're on the road. We see that in verse 21. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do mighty works in your name? And then will I declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Are you hearing that, friends? Many say, Lord, Lord. That is, many sincerely think themselves believers, and yet they are rejected on Judgment Day, despite having done works of power, which of course can be faked, which can even be demonic, according to 2 Thessalonians 2, 9-12. Having spiritual power doesn't prove anything. And what gives these people away, Jesus says, is that they are workers of lawlessness. The Greek literally says that they are anomion, that is, those not having a law. Those not having my law, Jesus says. They are not my people because they didn't keep my law. They didn't do all that I have just commanded. They didn't love God more than money. They didn't use a generous and merciful measure when interacting with others. They didn't do unto others as they would have done to themselves. They didn't tell the truth. They didn't love their enemies. They didn't love their wives. They didn't turn the other cheek. They didn't do their piety in private. They rejected all of what I have just said. And therefore, I will reject them on the last day. In Luke's version of the sermon, Jesus says here, 
Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I tell you? Luke 6, 46. Those who enter the kingdom come under the law of the king. Those who never do, never did. It's as simple and as significant as that. Verse 24. Everyone who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against that house and it fell and great was the fall of it. And when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching. For he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. When we fail to take this sermon seriously, we give evidence that we have not truly believed it. We have not truly reckoned with the authority of Jesus, and we are not truly believers in Jesus. We, we may look on the surface as if we are followers of Christ, but the storms and trials of life will reveal that we are not. Only the one who accepts the word of Christ as the word of his or her king, only the one who recognizes Christ as the rock and cornerstone and who builds their life upon him has truly entered the kingdom of heaven. Such a person will never be moved. Such a man or such a woman is finally and eternally secure. Thanks be to God. Well, that's all the time we have for today, friends. As always, if you are looking for more Bible teaching from Pastor Paul, you can find that over at the Into the Word website at intotheword.ca. Or you can download the Into the Word app at the iTunes Store or on Google Play. You can also connect with Pastor Paul and with other Bible readers on the Into the Word Facebook page. Just enter Into the Word into the search bar. And we'll see you right back here next Sunday morning as we continue our journey together through the whole counsel of God. We'll see you then. Your word is a lamp unto my feet.